Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 326. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 326 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated engineer Stephen Dent. Stephen has worked on records for Notorious B.I.G., Sean Diddy Combs, Mary J. Blige, Faith Evans, Little Kim, and many others. He's also spent a number of years running Daddy's House, the studio owned by Sean Diddy Combs, located in Brooklyn. I met Stephen while participating in rooms on Clubhouse, and I reached out, and he accepted my invitation to come on the show. And so we have a great conversation, and I'm really looking forward to you hearing about his journey. So, Stephen Dent, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about self-evaluation. If you're a creature of habit, you might find that you continue to do things in your audio world the same that you've done for years. Maybe you're always choosing the same mics or choosing the same plugins or you know mixing the same and always making the same general audio choices. Now, this might also apply to your business side of your audio practice as well. You might communicate the same way with your clients or bank the same way, etc. Now, some of your choices might work well, but some things might deserve to be reevaluated for improvement. I love going over how I do things every year, and I ask myself if there's a better way. Uh, I might be looking for efficiency or ways to save money, better ways to communicate, better ways of mixing, etc. In other words, just changing things up for the sake of improvement. Now, when I'm producing or consulting or giving advice to friends or family, I think the number one phrase that pisses me off more than any other is, well, that's the way we've always done it. Whether it's, that's the way we've always played that. That's the way I've always mic'd that. That's the way I've always mixed that. That's the way I've always insert the name of the task. To me, that's lazy thinking. And it signals to me that people in those situations are hesitant to change, even if it means improving their situation. Now, I'm not suggesting changing for changing's sake. I'm saying reevaluating anything you do over time allows room for growth, room to evolve, room to improve. Now, if we stick to old ideas that might have run their course or outlived their usefulness, I think most of us would still be wearing diapers and wetting the bed. Why? Because that's the way we've always done it, right? So I, I think you get it. That's that's a bit dramatic, yes, but I think it drives the point of what I'm asking you to consider. I want to encourage you to reconsider your methods for the things you do in your audio practice. One of the best examples to help break old habits that I can think of is Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies cards. That's a set of cards, if you're not familiar with them, that challenges your usual thinking in production and recording. And you can Google that or you can check the show notes because I'll include a link to what Oblique Strategies is. But remember, don't just focus on choice of mics, plugins, and production. Make sure to do the same for your business as well. Reevaluate how you're doing all things related to the money, the flow of money, the communication with the clients how you talk to the clients, all of that. Improvement is the name of the game here, friends. 
Open your mind up, consider the possibilities for growth and what benefits can come from it. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom. Very simply, just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Stephen Dent here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. How are you? How's everything? Things are good. Happy to be talking to you. We recently met. I reached out to you because I heard you speaking on Clubhouse, and I thought, wow, this guy, I bet, has a great story behind him and a great journey. And so I thought, I'm going to reach out to you. And you fortunately responded positively and joined me here today. So you're talking to us from New Jersey. Yes, Marlboro, New Jersey. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. Soon moved to Prince George's County, which is right across the line, a hop, skip, and a jump from 
Southeast DC. And those were my formative years, like from junior high school all the way through till I um, actually moved to New York. I was pretty much in Prince George's County. So Washington, D.C., that's where all my musical background came from. What were your your influences musically growing up? Not just who are the artists that you listen to, but who around you impacted you as far as their musical choices, et cetera? Well, that's pretty much everyone did. First, it was my mom. She sang in a gospel choir. So I really got a chance to <laughs> be baptized <laughs> into the gospel, <laughs> the, the, the gospel emotion. And, you know, that's one thing I really love about gospel music is just that the emotion it invokes. So gospel music was a really one of my first memorable experiences with loving music. And then pretty much when we got home on Saturday, well, before Sunday, Saturday morning, it was always Motown. It was Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Four Tops, Earth, Wind and Fire, any any of the classic 70s bands, artists, or things like that, that was clean up Saturday around the house. So, and it played all day and it played loud. So <laughs> I had no choice in loving Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and things like that. I had cousins who, they were rockers. They were just straight rockheads. So I got into the police, got into ACDC, got into Led Zeppelin, and a lot of other, you know, obscure bands and different things. Another cousin, his brother, he was a funketeer, so he liked all the funk records. So I'm into George Clinton, Bootsy, James Brown, and pretty much everyone. I had somebody who liked a different type of music, but I'm from D.C. So our homegrown music is called Go-Go. So once when we got probably into like the late 70s, that's when I really started noticing Go-Go, Chuck Brown, band called EU, Rare Essence. It was a lot of bands and there's still a lot of younger bands now today. So Go-Go was our homegrown music. So it was one of those things where there was music always around me. Everybody liked something different. And my neighborhood, when I first moved into it in Maryland, was kind of a mixed neighborhood. So there was always something different playing. And I just learned a lot. And then from a lady that used to sing with my mom in the choir, they lived right across in another apartment complex, right across the street from us. And I would go in their house. And then that's when I got into like the classic rock, like Journey. Like they they really play Journey a lot. So, <laughs> I mean, I can sing any Steve Perry song. So it's just, that's just in my head. So I'm in, I mean, music has been everywhere for me. So yeah. it, I'm picking up things from everything. My first job, I was a printer in a basement of a hospital. My boss, he liked classical music, so he played classical. I sang classical in high school, so that's another thing. But I would listen to it, but it would put me to sleep. So he put on a station, I forgot the name of it, W, not MZQ, that's the country station. I forgot the, I forgot the name of the station in D.C. He would put on that station. It was like easy listening rock. So today, I still listen to easy listening rock. I can turn on Yacht Rock from Sirius. <laughs> And I am good. Me and my wife were rolling down the road, singing and snapping. And we stopped. Somebody's playing trap beside me. I'm singing, sweet Caroline. You know what I mean? It's, it's just like, you know, I love doing that. So I'm, that type of stuff is music is just, if I like the song, I like the song. It's not a genre. I like the song. And then, you know, because DC, we, we had country. We're the home of, of punk rock. There was something back then called thrash. And every time I say it, people look at me like, what are you talking about? I don't know. It was just called thrash metal or thrash band. That's what they were called. 
Maybe it's a precursor to metal. I really don't know how it actually moved on, but that was like one of my first recording sessions in recording school was a thrash band. And it was just like, oh shit, what is this? Ooh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't know if I can curse. Oh, you can curse all you like, want. I was like, what is this? And it was just a bunch of noise. It was just, I, 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 I'm like, what is going on? So then I stopped, you know, my mind slowed down. Same thing when I played football, everything would just slow down. I, my mind slowed down. And I looked at the bass player and I saw how he was moving on the bass. I'm like, damn, that's good. You know, I couldn't hear what he was doing, but I could see that he was really into it. But he wasn't thinking about it. He was just looking around and I just saw his fingers. I'm like, what the fuck? Then it came in. I heard it. I'm like, oh, he's playing some magic. That's how I got into it. Then I, I heard the drummer, just his hi-hat pattern. Like, how are you doing that? I started loving that. So it was just all types of music that came from D.C., I listened to everything at least once. I wanted to ask you about go-go music. What are the characteristics of go-go hey, music? Hey. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really Afro-Cuban rhythms. Mm -hmm. And I can say that it's really Afro-Cuban rhythm that it's mainly is just the beat. And what I call the power, what is called the pocket. Once the beat just boosh, got it's hard for me to, I could play it and and let you hear it, Yeah, but that's a whole nother journey because we would play stuff for like two hours. Because <laughs> I, I have an older brother that moved to D.C. long ago, and I first heard of go-go music from him and never quite dug deep enough to figure out what go-go music was all about. But that's that's really interesting in that in your upbringing, your musical exposure was very broad. Yeah. I like to think that we in that little fishbowl down there called Washington, D.C., I think we had everything. And I'm grateful. I mean, I listened to John Denver because they played it on the radio. You know what I mean? I listened to the mamas and the papas because they played it on the radio. It was all about just finding a little transistor radio that I would just walk around like a little handheld thing and I would listen to everything. Whatever station came in where I was, I would just turn to it because I was just exposed to so much music. It just gave me the ear to just to hear the music. And not, oh man, that's country. Get get that out of here. I don't want to listen to that. But no, I'm a big John Denver fan. Like I love John Denver. You know what I mean? <laughs> I can listen to all that Rocky Mountain High, all of that stuff. I mean, it's just stuff that if it comes on the radio, like my wife hates me when we go to the grocery store. If it comes on, I'm singing. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm walking down the aisle singing uh Mamas and Papas, you know, and it's like all the leaves are brown. Yeah. <laughs> and this and I'm singing, skipping and having a good time because I love something about that song or it'll take me back to a place of youth when I first heard the music. I mean, Country Road Take Me Home. I mean, my family had property down in Manassas, Virginia, and man, that's all they played was country music. So hmm. I listen to all of that stuff and Country Road Take Me Home takes me back to my aunt's farm that's not there anymore. So it, it's songs just bring back that emotional part of me where, where I was when I heard the song first. So I can always have that. And every type, name a song, I can tell you where I was when I heard it first. <laughs> well, so when did recording enter into your world? Well, like I said, I started in, in school. I played drums in the symphonic band. It was nothing. I just played the snare. But that was that was nothing. And then I moved up to the choir. I started singing in junior high school, started singing in the choir. We sang, you know, top 40 stuff like that, whatever, and some gospel stuff that was fine. 
Then when I went to high school, there was a high school band. I went to Oxon Hill Senior High School. There was a band my freshman year. It's called Malaika. And there was a music director, Mary Cole, one of the most influential people ever in my life. Like, she is just magic to me. She had this band called Malaika. And in that band, it was funny, a lot of people were from my neighborhood or on my street. There was a bass player, Anthony Wellington. He plays with Victor Wooten. He's one of Victor Wooten's guys. Anthony Wellington is, I, I put no one above his musical talent. No one. Prince, nothing. I'm sorry. Anthony Wellington is the best musician in practice and spirit and understanding of music. I don't think anybody else had that. Maybe Mozart. Maybe. Just hmm. maybe. But Anthony Wellington, he has something called Bassology, Bass Camp, or something like that he does. And he teaches bass players around the world. He is the, wow. When I hear him talk about music, if you don't like music after you talk to him about music, mm -hmm. then just jump off a bridge because there's no <laughs> use for you. In that band, that was Anthony Wellington. Then there was Keith and Kevin Bentley, Marvin Bryson. Like These are people that lived on my street that were in this band, and they were phenomenal. And my sophomore year, I went, thought I was going to play football, so I didn't join the band. I wanted to be you know, the macho guy. I was just a little teeny twerk, but you know, anyway, I didn't join the band, and I wish I'd had joined the band that year because that band was great that year. And then I joined the band. Yeah, I think it was the next year I joined the band. And no, I wasn't in the band that year. I joined the choir. I was in the choir uh, okay. that next year. And just hearing those guys, it was, I know everybody. It was Anthony Wellington, Dale Marie Hines, Matthew Green, Laurie Williams. Who else? Who was the drummer? Um, God, they had like three different drummers. But anyway, they were just, it was great for me to see that because then I knew I wanted to do that. I said, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to be one of those guys. Now, on my street again, there was another band called Hot Property. And some of the members from that band Hot Property were in this band, John Douglas and Kim Bergen. They're still married to this day. And they live out in LA. One's a chef. One, I forgot what Kim does, but I think she works in healthcare. But that band, we used to stand out in front while the drummer, it was at the Quarterman's house. It was a drummer called Parrish Quarterman. And they were practicing there. And we would stand outside the house and pretend we were singing the songs, doing the dance steps. You know, we wanted to be a part of that. So when I saw these people in that band, I said, I want to be in that band. So then my senior year, I didn't play football. So I joined the band. And in my band, Michelle Indege Ocello, she was my bass player. Oh, my and gosh. He, she was like, she's like my little sister. Well, back then we were like brother and sister. Wow. Her brother, Jacques Johnson, is the next best musician I know. And <laughs> just being around those people, the singers, the keyboarders, the drummers, and especially the bass players gave me that thing that I wanted. I wanted to do this. I wanted to be in music. I just had to be in music. And, you know, just my overall love for music, it, it brought me to it. So getting to recording. After high school, I didn't go to college, didn't get the scholarship I thought I was going to get for playing football that I didn't play. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I, I was given a skill. I was given a trade in high school. It was graphic arts and printing. I took that class and coming out of high school, I could work. I probably took me like three months out of high school and I had it. Well, no, I was a bum my first summer. I was just a bum. I started breakdancing and DJing and all that shit, all that stuff. So it was that was a wasted, but it was great time because I got to immerse myself in hip hop, which brought me to New York. Another story. But I started DJing and I bought the equipment because I had a job. I had a little part time job. And, you know, I was going back to school, community college for music production and songwriting. 
So I was learning some skills. So I bought a drum machine, some turntables. At first, I bought turntables. I was DJing, hated playing other people's music. But, you know, the hip-hop era came in, so it was great. Bought a drum machine, and I just started making little whack beats. And then I bought another drum machine, made it even whacker beats. And <laughs> then I finally got it. It finally worked where I started writing raps. And then I went to a studio. My first recording session ever <laughs> was in the basement, well, in the bedroom of a guy who was in a, who was in a go-go band in high school. His go-go band was called Prophecy. In my neighborhood, we, we still loved it. Not my neighborhood, but my area. Mm -hmm. a part of town, part of PG County, Oxen Hill. They were in Oxen Hill. So they lived in this community called Prophecy. So they named the band Prophecy. He was starting to record and do, do things. So I went to his house, which was a daycare because his mother <laughs> was a daycare <laughs> provider for my god sister and my little brother. So that's a whole nother story there. So I went there and we bounced. We went from Super VHS to Betamax. We were going back and forth back and forth, low degradation until I came out with my first song. That was the first song I ever recorded. That's how you were recording on... That's on, my first song. On That's video. That's the first time I ever... On v Super VHS and Betamax. Just going boom, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Back and forth, back and forth, back and no forth. No shit. Wow. And it came out great. <laughs> I mean, it was a good song. And it was so good that all of my friends would play it in their cars because I made cassettes and I used for the love of money was my sample. And I chopped it up in a way that no one else, else had ever chopped it up. And it was about boxing, but it was like a verbal fight. You know, I was like taking on all comers. I was in the squared circle, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, that's when I thought I could rap. I had something to say back then. I don't now, don't listen to me. But everybody was playing it. Then New Jack City came out. We all went to see New Jack City. When they opened the credits, when they started singing, Everybody stood up and turned around and looked at me. I'm like, what are y'all doing? They said, how'd you get your song in the movie? Because that opening song, they used it for the love of money. Oh. Sample. And they thought it was mine. I said, no, I didn't chop it up that way. But damn, how did they get my idea? You know, it was just one of those things. So I had to call the guy, yo, Kevin, did you send somebody my... And long story. Anyway, but that guy, Kevin, he has one of the best recording studios in the area called Night Flight Recording. And I don't know if you know who Stacey Lattisaw is. I don't. She was a singer from the 80s. She was like a very young singer. She sang a lot of good records. I can't think of any of her songs. Right? One of them is called Dynamite. The other one is called Let Me Be Your Angel. It was a song, a pop song called Let Me Be Your Angel. Well, my friend Kevin married her. So it's, I have the Forrest Gump stories of the music <laughs> industry. Trust me, I do. I, I really do. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and another thing, Marvin Gaye's mother, and my grandmother were best friends. Of course they were. Yeah, they lived on a street in Northeast called Bates Street. And then they both moved to Northwest. My grandmother moved first to 14th and Varnum Street, Northwest. And then mother, that's Marlon, Marvin Gaye's mother. We all just called her mother. They lived at the corner. They had the biggest house on the block. But Marvin had already left to go. He was doing his thing by then. That's okay. I'd still, I'd still tell people that. Yeah, I mean, my family, they, they used to go out when he came back from overseas. He was in L.A., they would go spend Christmas with him like a couple of years. I, I never went. I can't really say I ever met Marvin Gaye. Right. But I used to ride big wheels with little Marvin. I remember knowing him when she was like a little teeny baby. So it was just things like that. Dude, I have so many Forrest Gump stories. I'm sure you do. <laughs> well, so 
this situation where you're recording on on these video formats which that mm. blows my mind did that ignite any kind of desire in you to be on the other side of the glass no it never did that huh. didn't even like when when i was in the band i don't like the way my voice sounds over a microphone i just don't so i would go to the board we had the little portable mixing board and i would just see this thing said high low mid and mid and i just start turning the button just to get my voice to sound better. And because I think I have this this low mid thing that that's I don't know if you can hear it. I hear it every time I talk. I guess it's just internal. Mm-hmm. I can't stand it. And then I have a something at the top that's a little whiny too. So I turn my highs down and I turn my low mids all the way down. Not all the way down, but down. Hmm. And it's just I never liked the way my voice sounds. So then my voice started sounding better than all the other singers. So then all the other singers said, Can you turn my voice that way. You know, we shared mics, so we had to had to make everybody's for whoever's going to... The lead singers had their own mics. I wasn't really... I had a couple songs that I could sing, but I wasn't a lead singer. I was backup. I played some backup percussions or whatever. But I did everybody's mic. Then everybody started sounding good. Then Michelle was like, hey, can you make my bass sound better? Mm. I was, okay. So I get on there and I, I watch these playing. I just kept... Doing, didn't know what I was doing. I was just turning things in, trying to make it sound like I heard on records. And that's all I was doing. And that was the beginning of me turning knobs, just turn it and let it go. What catapulted me to become an engineer was out of spite. Another song I did, well, one one of my pop records that I did, it was called uh, My Girl's Running Around. My sister will still play it occasionally and I can't stand her. I hate her. But um, <laughs> she plays that record. I said, please don't play that record. But it was my one of my first pop records. Before that, I went to this studio, and it was when D.C. was the murder capital of the United States. So I did a song called Another One Dies, where I named everybody that had been murdered that year. And while I'm rapping, I'm saying their names in the background and things like that. I wish I could find that copy because I love that song. But anyway, I went back to that guy, and I'm trying. No, this was a different guy. I went to another guy, and I'm trying to get him to EQ a snare a certain way. And he gave me some, I'm going to say he said it was phasing. I don't think that's the word. I'm just out of my education. I'm thinking that would, would have been the only reason he didn't EQ the snare the way I wanted him to do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm driving home full of, my eyes are just in tears because you didn't let me finish my creation of my song. That was my baby. And you just told me my baby was ugly and had three feet. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just could not get over that. And that's why I am today. When I work on somebody's song, I'm babysitting. I just want your baby to go back to you in better condition than when it came in. That's it. Because I know what somebody did to me, and I could never be that hypocritical with something that I love. And I love doing this. So I make sure I do what they ask me to do. I will give them options. I was like, this might be a good option. Do you want to hear that? No, shut up and push buttons. No problem, sir. I'll push buttons. But after that, I said I needed to learn what that guy told me was wrong so I could fix it just in my production. I just want to make sure that I could do it. So I went on this thing. I found a school. It was called Omega Recording in Rockville, Maryland. A couple people that are prominent in the industry did go to that school. And I learned the fundamentals of audio. And I understood certain things. And I really understood that he was piping bullshit up my ass and I couldn't stand him. <laughs> right. But the one thing I did not expect is that I would fall in love with it, that it chose me. And 
it was just happenstance that brought me to that point. Maybe I'd, I'd, I'd have gotten to that point, but I think it would have been later if that guy didn't do that to that song to me. And it just brought me in and haven't looked back. I mean, that was the moment when I went to the school. And, you know, first you have to do all the business stuff and get the fundamentals and all the formulas and everything. Okay, we, we went through that. And I love the business stuff. And uh, the owner at the time was this guy named Bob Yesbeck. He was a teacher at American University. I was going to enroll in American University because I was just, you know, I just loved how he taught. And he taught me a lot, just, just in a lecture kind of environment. And I would stay after class a lot, just pick his brain for business questions and how does this music industry thing work? You know, how does the music business work? So he was a great person to me. And then when we started the studio side of things, I sat down in front of an SSL E-series with plasma meters. I still see it today. And my, I know what it was when I sat there. It was just, oh my God. Now it was five of us in the room and we were all sitting there and it was a, myself. I can't remember the other guy's name. And there was another guy named Charles Rome. He, he ended up being a big DJ in the Washington, D.C. area. And he also ended up being DJ Premier's partner years later. We met up again in New York and it was like, you know, hey, buddy. But anyway, <laughs> again, Forrest Gump. I got too many of them. So it was, I think it was probably more than that in the room. I just remember five of us sitting up front and they say, okay, who wants to go first? And you saw everybody else back up except the three of us. Charles, a guy named Charles. He ended up doing going down to Atlanta. He was big in gospel and he did some R&B stuff. I can't remember his last name, but anyway. The three of us just stood there just in trance, like, we're going to touch this. Let me go. And then Chris Athens, I think that's his name, the engineer. And he, I said, yo, yo, so many buttons. He said, look, look at one channel. Now go up and down. Look at the next channel. It's the same as the last one. Go to the next one. It's the same as the first one. Go to the next one. It's the same as the first one. You just have to know what each part of that bucket does or each part of that channel does and, with, and in which order it comes in and goes out. And that's what it is. And copy and repeat all the way down. Except when you get to these channels, you're talking about the VCAs and some other things. The middle section is different, blah, 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 blah. So I fell in love with it. I mean, there was no turning back at that point. Once I saw those plasma meters go up and down, I was, you had me. You had me at hello. Come yeah. to the room. I'm, I'm done. So that's when I knew I had the bug. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to sampley.app or sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. You know, it's interesting. I talked to so many engineers who did get their start in similar ways by out of spite, out of bad experiences Mm. at studios saying, okay, this guy was an asshole to me. I'm going to go do this in my own way. Right. And I, I always wanted to go back to his studio and go, you lied to me. You know, I really <laughs> was getting this shit. But I was just like, you know what? Thank you. You know, I want to tell him thank you. Thank you for fucking up my life and making me do this. Like, because it it meant the world to me. That, like, that moment meant everything to me. And I have two moments like that in my life that, like, just like, whoa, you just changed my life. Yeah, because had he not done that, I wonder where where it would have wound up for you. I mean, I would have been still making, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still a producer. I'll always be a producer. Yeah. And I continuously to produce. I would have just focused purely on production and not really engineering. So it was just one of those things that it just got me to my purpose quicker. Everything I had done before that was leading me to a purpose. And that was the catalyst to say, there it is right there. That's your purpose. Go for it. Now, leapfrog me ahead in time. We were talking on Clubhouse the other day, and I know that you came into a studio situation and you ended up being the intern that was organizing the tape library and making yourself available and bringing value to the table. Did that actually start your career officially? Well, before I left D.C., my partner, and we're still partners to this day, my brother Marlon Wiggins, we had the number one record in D.C., It was called The Water Dance. It was a hybrid hip-hop go-go record. And I left because I knew me and the artists weren't going to get along. So at the height of that part in my hometown, I left it alone. I left my turntables. I left my records. I left drum machines. I left everything. I said, no, here, it's yours. Do what you got to do. I wanted to go back to school to understand more. I've been on this constant quest for education. Not, not all, you know, it it comes in spurts. Right now I'm in the real high spurt of learning, but I had to go back to school. And the only place that I thought that I could do what I wanted to do was in New York. So I enrolled in school in New York. I happened to be in the office when the brother of Robert Clavillis, that was part of CNC Music Factory, he was one of the C's in CNC Music Factory, was David Cole and Robert Clavillis. So Robert Clavillis' brother, Carlos, was a student at the school. They just built a new recording studio called the House of Sound that was three blocks away from the school. And he was just there talking to one of the student counselors that they needed interns. They just built the studio. And she looked up, said, Steve, you want to intern? I said, yeah. They sent me over there. So that's how I got my intern. That was one of my first internships. Although I did intern other places in New York, just on my own volition, just traveling up and down the trains, finding any studio, most of them didn't work, but I would spend two or three hours, two or three days, some two or three weeks. And I said, this ain't for me. And I left. So the school got me that one. And also another one at Firehouse Recording Studio with a lot of hip hop notables, Wu-Tang, Master Ace, MC Light, the Audio 2. A lot of hip hop people came out of that studio. But in that instance with CNC Music Factor, I went in and 
to me, that would have been my first big time gig, being an intern at CNC Music Factory. Although I was an intern, I was making $10 a day. I was only supposed to work four hours a day for three days a week. That lasted maybe two weeks. And then I was there 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And I was still making the same $40 a week. But I loved it. It was the best place for me. Bob Rosa, who was the engineer at the time, he was the mix engineer at the time, Bob Rosa. He did a lot of Gloria Stefan and the Sound Machine, all that. He did all that stuff. And also another tracking engineer, Aja Key, was there. And when I say those were my saints, those were my saints. Because as an intern, you were really, I hate to say dogged out because they didn't really dog me out there, but other places tried to, and that's why I left. But there was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of interns. Some of the interns didn't pull their weight. So I went to management. There was Teresa Wilson, who was, she was the manager of the facility, I would say. She later on went to Arista and she she passed, she, she passed from cancer. But she took care of me when I was at Arista. That's a long story. But she she was a beautiful human being to me. But she was in charge. And I just went to her like, Teresa, you got to fire all these people. She said, what are you talking about? I said, they're messing me up. So what are you talking about? And I took her downstairs. I said, how many times have I walked in here? Trash is here. Stuff is on the floor. Now, you could call me a sellout or a snitch or whatever. I was just, I don't want you to mess it up for me. And they said, well, who are we going to get to enter? And I said, I'll do it all. They said, well, what time are you going to get here? I get out of school at 1 o'clock. I'll be here at one o five, And I will stay here until everybody leaves. And she said, okay, you got a week. If there's anything that's left undone in a week. She said one, and she meant it. And she was a hard ass. And I love her to death to this day. But again, I proved myself to her early. And then later on in life, she rewarded me with a lot of work because she was A&R admin for Arista Records. So... <laughs> Another Forrest she, Gump moment. Another Forrest Gump story. But she was, and, and I see her face, I see her smile. She is a beautiful human to me. So I did it. I came in, I stationed everything. So as soon as I first walked in the door, I put everything in the closet. There was a coat closet right next to the elevator. They were still doing construction. So it was like a lot of dust and they had black carpet. Like, come on, man. You oh. really, like, what you want me to do with this? So every time I would vacuum as I'm backing up, like going to my room and then I clean everything on my way before I even take my book bag off, before I took my coat off. This is what I'm doing to get downstairs. So once I get downstairs, I can take my coat off. And normally I put my stuff in the the tape closet. It was small at first. It was a little small tape closet. I put my, my stuff in the tape closet and then I would then go back upstairs and get all the rest of the trash and da 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 And then that vacuum cleaner, because I'm sure somebody walked on the carpet. I'd take that vacuum cleaner and back the way up, all the way back to the next closet. So I just did that all the time. And I would stand, they had a cubby hole in the hallway between the two studios. Not a cubby hole, but like the, the little window in the door to the control room. And I would just stand there. And then I'd see this. Then I'd come in. Yeah, what do you need? Yo, give me some pencils and pads. Okay. I go get pencils and pad. Boom. Can you go to the store for me? Go to the store. So then my mind, I said, I want to be in a room. So I would, st- I would do everything so I could stand right there by that door. And I would stand by the door. And then when they called me in, I would come in and I would look to see what they're doing. I would listen to see what they're doing. There was a producer, Ricky Crespo. He was using a sequencing system called Voyetra. 
I don't even know what that shit did. I think I think it moved to space shuttles, but whatever. <laughs> he was making hits because that's all the CNC Music Factory's music was done on that piece of shit computer that he was using, using Voyetra. Have you ever heard of that? No, you're the first person I've ever heard <laughs> yeah, that it's word. It's called Voyetra, and I'm like, yo, what is this? And, you know, I did a lot of sampling and a lot of drum machines and sequencing and stuff. I had never seen that. And I'm looking like it was just lines and colors. Like, I had no idea what he was doing. But he was a ma- he is a master at that. It's just a lost art that he was the master, moving stuff around. Oh, anyway, so I I saw that for the first time, and I'm looking. I see all the outboard gear. I see the SSL. Blah 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 blah. And then just one day, Bob Rosa he told me to come in the room. I said, "What you need?" He said, "Nothing." I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "Do you know this this board?" I said, "Yes, SSL." Blah 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 blah. Do you know how to program the computer? And you know that pause. Bob Rosa's kind of burly guy. He said, "Whoa." Got me in a headlock, took my hand, said, this is how you do that. This is how you do this. This is how you do this. This is how you do this. Now do it. Nope. This is how you do this. And he did that probably three days in a row till I knew the SSL computer like the back of my hand. Wow. I could move the space shuttle with the with the SSL computer. The SSL computer was written in a DOS language. So it was just like backwards as shit. I'm like, what the fuck? But yeah. I had to learn it. To, to, to understand a computer. So I did it. Bob Rosa is my, and to this day, I still talk to he and his wife, Jerry. I always called her mommy. I still call her mom. I'm 55 years old. <laughs> and I call this this older white lady mommy. I'm like, hey, mommy, how are you? We talk all the time on Facebook. So she she is a joy. He's he's the man. That was my big teddy bear. And I, I love him to this day. Aja Key actually got me understanding how to track something good, <laughs> how to get good levels and to make sure that you're tracking to the mix. You're tracking as if you're mixing. So do it that way and organize your shit, organize your shit. That's all he was saying. Organize your shit, organize your shit. And he was just a grand master at organizing shit. And he wasn't even paying attention. He had a cigarette, a cup of coffee. Yeah, organize your shit. Organize. And he's just doing his thing. I'm like, damn, how are you that good? And you're not even trying. But Ajaki was the bomb. And then... There were certain days when there was nothing to do. And, you know, I, I hated sitting around because I'm away from my family. I left my family in D.C. I left a high paying job for a 27 year old. I probably would, would have been making 80 to 90 thousand dollars in graphic arts and printing. My boss at the time was giving me a house and I left all of that to be an intern and work in somebody's basement. So I put a lot of time into it. And then, like I said the other day, the tape closet it was something needed to be done. And they would say, Steve, go get the tape. And I'm going like, what the fuck is this? You know, I'm looking, it's like maybe 300 tapes all sitting on the floor in the corner. I'm like, dude, you're going to fuck up the tape. Like, what are you doing? So I just look and I said, okay, they had shelves in boxes. So I had to take all of the shelves out, put the shelf. Well, I had somebody else help me with the shelves, put the shelves up. And then I just went boom, boom, boom. I went date, artist, producer, song name, type of tape, genre. Like everything was just in a chronological order. So whenever they needed a tape, it was like, Steve, can you go get a tape? Boom, here. Steve can go get a tape. Nobody wanted to go down to the tape thing because they didn't want to mess it up. They were all scared to go in there. No, nah, I'm not going in there. Steve is going to scream. And I'm, I'm still an intern. But after that, they elevated me up to general assistant. And I was an assistant to the assistant who was Christian Delator. And Christian Delator ended up being big puns engineer and a whole lot of stuff, other things that he did, he got into. Then when Christian had other things to do, I was just, I was the assistant engineer. I would assist Bob. Bob said, no, 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 Steve knows me. Mm-hmm. 
know, there were days a, a rock group called Freaks of Desire came over from London. And I don't think I left the studio for like a month. I would sleep under the console because that was the only warm place in the whole building. You know, there was never any heat in the building. And the air conditions ran 24 hours. So I would sleep under the console with a blanket. That was the only heat in the building. So it was something that I wanted to do. And when I had to leave, like I did have to go back to school. Right. So the days I would leave the studio it could be four o'clock in the morning. I lived in St. Albans, Queens at the time. So I would have to catch the E to the F train and then the F all the way to the end of the line. And then from there, I would have to walk about 45 minutes to get home through some crazy neighborhoods. You know what I'm saying? No sidewalks, dark, and anything could happen in New York. My mom was so scared that I was going to turn up like Living for the City, the Stevie Wonder song. <laughs> if you heard that, you know, yeah. that's what my mom thought was going to happen to me. Hey, New York, skyscrapers and everything. Yeah. <laughs> and end up in jail. But so I, I ended up sleeping on trains because there was no way to get home and then back to school by 7.50. That takes an incredible amount of motivation and desire to go through that, to travel that. I mean, just the, just the train and the walking alone, but just the time spent at the studio. Were you, were you surviving? Were you eating? Were you... Yeah. Well, again, $40 a day doesn't get much, but that was my transportation money. That was enough money to get back home and come. Or that was $40 a week, wasn't it? $40 a week. Right. And there's Gray's Papaya. Don't don't forget about, well, yeah, I don't know if you were ever in New York. There's a little restaurant called Gray's Papaya. You can go buy two hot dogs and a drink for $2.45. So yeah. I survived. And I ate hot dogs probably while my insides are just torn all the fuck right now. But <laughs> I ate hot dogs probably... <laughs> three times a day, <laughs> four days a week. But what we did in the studio, I mean, we ordered a lot of food. So there was always food and they never let me be hungry. So we would always have chicken wing battles. Who could eat the hottest hot wings? Bob Rose always won. <laughs> but it was always food left over. And then when I was sleeping on the train, you know, it was my job to throw away the food because I didn't let them hire any more interns. Even when I was an assistant, I just did everything. So it was my job to clean up all the food. So I would take the food that wasn't touched and put it in packages. Then when I couldn't make it home, I would take the food and put it on the train. And I would just tell these guys, hey, it's food. And, you know, they would say, hey, how do we know you didn't do something? I said, because I'm going to be sleeping right here on this bench. If y'all see that food, there's something wrong with it. Where am I going? Right. Y'all got me. I'm on the train. <laughs> there's nothing I can do. And I wouldn't say I developed, I guess you can call it developed a relationship with some of the homeless guys that they would wake me up for school. Yo, yo, young blood, train's about to leave, but you're not going to get back in time for school. And they would wake me up and I would get, a, and I was at Chambers Street. So I had to go over to the other side, catch the E-train back up to West 4th Street. And my school was about five blocks away from, from, from there. So again, I don't think any kind of way about it. Growing up in D.C., it was a survival. You had to always, you know, watch your back and keep your head on the swivel. The slightest stare. If I looked at you this hard in D.C., one of us could could be shot. Like, that's just the mentality of the city at that time. So I hate to say I wasn't afraid. I just didn't think about it. It just wasn't something on my mind. I don't think God would have done that to me. Yeah. <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> so leapfrog me ahead once again into mm -hmm. working with, uh, with Diddy. And some of the bigger acts that you've worked with, I know that there's a lot of detail there that we, we're going to skip over, but how did Diddy come into your life and what was the event that led up to that? Well, the event that led up to that was a person at IAR 
that there's so much more about CNC Music Factory, I could say, and Firehouse, but we're going to skip forward for time constraints. There was a guy at IAR that I recently, I was speaking in another room, and a friend of mine that I've known for years was a friend of his, but he didn't know we knew each other because someone asked me, how did I get there? Someone sent me a page on my pager when I had left, once CNC Music Factory kind of died down after David Cole passed away. I went back to work because I had a, a skill, like a print. You know, so I ran offset printing presses in the basement on 55th Street in Manhattan. It was called copyright printing. So I had a pager and I looked at the number and I walked upstairs. And the funny thing, the guy still has the same number. So <laughs> I was like, who is this? So I called him and said, hey, Steve, this is Colin. And me and Colin did not like each other in school because he down-talked Go-Go all the time. He took my record and threw it on the ground. And I'm like, wow. And at home, he would have been disposed of quickly. I'm just saying. Yeah. I wasn't at home. So it was just like, okay, this is not my town. I got to deal with this. So he called me and said, do you want to work for Bad Boy? Exact words. Hey, Steve, this is Colin. Do you want to work for Bad Boy? No, he said, I said, who is this? He said, I said, did somebody page Steve? He said, yeah, this is Colin. I said, what the fuck you want? Just like that, because I knew we didn't like each other. Right. I thought he was calling just to heckle me or something, say something, something about my mama. I, I don't know. <laughs> but God put him in my life. And again, the second thing to change my life, like that phone call, that page changed my life. Yeah. Like that, my life was changed. So he called and said, do you want to work for Bad Boy? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, go to 321 West 44th Street, ask for Shay. Now, he and Shay worked at a retail store. I think it was Bloomingdale's. I thought it was Saks Fifth Avenue, but I think it's Bloomingdale's. They worked cashier in the men's department. And she worked full-time as a receptionist for Daddy's House Recording Studio, which was Puff Studio. Mm -hmm. And I went in and I did a quick little interview with the technical guy, John Eaton, still a good friend to this day. He said, do you know this boy? He said, yeah. He said, well, what is that? That's an SSL, that's a G4000, blah, blah, blah. Whatever the automated thing is, I can't think of, remember now. And he said, do you know how to recall the thing? I said, yeah, because I knew the machine because Bob Rosen. Because Bob Rosen was putting you in headlocks. So he said, okay. He said, so set this up to go. He said, everything go. Recall came up. And he said, okay, now recall the mix. Did like 60 channels in like 15 minutes just because I'm just so used to doing it. You know, I just did it and it was done. Hit the button and said, cool. And they played the tape and it played. And I said, okay. So, okay, come back tomorrow. So I came back the next day and my first session was with, there's another engineer that comes in the clubhouse, Michael Patterson. He was a long time bad boy engineer, but this was his first time, I think in New York and definitely his first time working with Puff and at daddy's house. He came in with another producer from Atlanta called Arnold Hennings and they were working with 112 for the first time. That was Puff's second R&B group, but they were male, male R&B group. And we worked in the room. He didn't know the room. I barely knew the room. <laughs> so we worked, and I would say me and Mike, that's why Mike and I have developed this, this kinship over all these years because we helped each other work in that room for the first time. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't know where anything was. I just knew I could read a patch bay. I knew the console. That was it. He said, hey, can you give me another cable? I'm like, from where? <laughs> so I had to find out where the cables were and everything. And we helped each other work in that setting. And he didn't understand how Puff really worked how hard he could turn the screw. So I kind of pushed him along with that. He he got everything well. You know, I'm not saying I was the key to his success or anything like that, but I think we helped each other make it through those formative days. And 
I think I worked with him for like three or four days and I never went home, never left the studio. Same underwear, same socks, and I didn't care. Same T-shirt. It was just that this was work. And I didn't really meet Puff until uh, probably, let's say, the second week he came in. And I, I met him at a couple conferences, music conferences at Howard University. They would all come down, the cultural initiative and the How Can I Be Down conferences that they used to have. I met Andre Harrell, Puff, Heavy D, all of those guys, you know, just in passing, talking to them and it was cool. And now to see that you're up here doing it. And I remember Andre Harrell said, man, I'm going to see you sometime in the future. Don't worry about it. And he said that to me back then. And I just said, what? He said, yeah, I'm going to see you soon. Mark my word. And then the first time I saw Andre in the studio session, he came up to me. I told you I was going to see you. <laughs> Can't make this up. Can't make it up. What did you learn from your time there? And what did you learn from, from Puff about the business and I'm sure that in that stretch of time, there was there was just like an immense amount of information coming at you and and shaping you for the future. About the business, the business doesn't like anybody. That's the one thing that you're going to get. The business is the business and the industry is the industry. You can handle your business or you could just be in the industry. And if you don't handle your business, the industry will eat you up. And he was a master of getting people to do a lot of stuff they didn't want to do because he could leverage a lot of things that he's already done. He, he was a master of leverage. And you didn't even know you were being leveraged at that point. Mm. He could just, wow, that, it's a lot to say about that. That's a, that's a rabbit hole. But he was a commander of business. He knew how it worked. He understood the industry politics. He knew how to get around them. And he constantly negotiated great deals in his behalf. And to learn that from a person like that is invaluable. I don't care what school you go to, Harvard Business, Music Business College, if there's such a thing, you're not going to get more information than you can just spending one week with him. Even to this day, like, I spend the holidays with him sometimes. And this holiday was we were down in Miami. And just if you're with him for 20 minutes, you'll hear 50 phone calls and you'll hear how he comes up on the plus side of all of those phone calls every time. So there's nothing's changed. And I'm pretty sure he was like that when he was a kid because I hear stories of, <laughs> of how he, you know, manipulated the ice cream man or something like that. He He's a master of getting the best out of a situation. Did that rub off on you? I can't say it. I, I understand where people are coming from better. Mm -hmm. I can see that hidden agenda long before they open their mouths. So I'm a better judge of character, talent, and of the situation. I think I can judge situations almost instantly now. Hmm. And that, that came from just watching him and watching the way the people react around him. I was never the coattail follower. This goes back to forever. I, I just wasn't. But you have to admire the power and the control he had. And it just wasn't my crowd. I didn't want to always be around him. So whenever we were in social settings, it was like the sea parting. Like you would see him going this way and you see just one little guppy going that this way and you see a whole <laughs> bunch of 
sharks and whales following that way. That's the way my wife could find me in the club. She would just look and see wherever he was going, just look for who's going the opposite way. And I'm I'm not saying I did it out of hate or spite. It's just that I had to work with him all day. I'm not going to follow him around in the club. Right. You know, it just didn't make any sense. Like, you want me to be at work all the time. You know what I mean? So I said, no, I'm not doing that. When I have free time, that that's what saved me. My family, my wife, meeting my wife. And even that phone call, like I said, that thing changed my life because I met my wife at daddy's house. Yeah. And we're married 22 years now. Do you think your work-life balance was out of whack at any point there working working for Puff? Yes, it it has to be. My girlfriend at the time when I first started working there, I mean, we were on the way out anyway. I mean, it wasn't like that was the catalyst, but it was something that had to be done. And she was in retail, didn't really understand what I was doing. And there, there there's some other issues that, that are underlying that we don't need to get into, but it wasn't going to work because I wasn't coming home. And when you're not coming home, all sorts of thoughts go into your head yeah. about what are you doing? And I get it. It was the music industry and there's a lot of opportunity if you want it. Whatever you want, there's a lot of opportunity there. So my mission was to be better. And I don't think a lot of people, my wife understands me. And that's the only reason why we're married. She knows I'm not, I mean, I could have strippers walking down here right now. Right. But she, if I, if I say I'm going to the studio, she knows I'm going to the studio. She knows that this is my love, you know, besides her and my son, this is it. I will do this. Or if I'm not doing this, I'm playing golf or I'm with them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's, it, it's not, I don't hang out. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't have, I don't go to clubs. The only thing I did, I hung with my friends that I played football with playing Madden. Other than that, I was in the studio. Like there was no, there was nothing else. And I wanted to make sure that she understood that when I'm in the studio, this is what's going on. She used to come to the studio with me. And some of my friends have this joke that when I lived in Rochester, you okay, baby? Like, because whenever she was in the studio, they said, I just want to know, are you okay, baby? I would always just stop and ask that, but that's a long story. Yeah, there, there was a time when it was just terrible. Like, I wouldn't come home and I didn't care to come home. Yeah. Because I knew what I was doing. It, it, I didn't, I don't want to leave the studio. I really don't. Like, this, if I could move my bed right here and, you know, my son had a room down there, my wife, she could have another room. I would sleep right here all night. I would be here. It takes that understanding from a partner, doesn't it? To know that mm -hmm. this is your passion and that there's not some, you know, whatever. There's not some crazy agenda going on. This is just what you love to do. This is just what I do. And same thing with golf. Now, I know this is on off topic. <laughs> she knows that when I'm golfing, I am golfing. She doesn't like it. But I'm golfing. I'm not out like when, you know, my friends will say, hey, you know, I know a couple of millionaires that say, hey, Steve, come on, take this trip with us. They'll take me, we'll get on a plane and we'll go South Carolina. We'll just go play golf or we'll go to Nevada. We'll play golf. And and I'm just like, I'm golfing. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, you know who I'm with. I'm golfing. But music is is my thing. And golf is my my relief from everything. I want to ask you about when we talk about taking care of the business, taking care of the financial end of things in your time, did you learn any hard lessons along the way? Or because you strike me as a very disciplined person. No, no. <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> Financially, it's still a tough thing. Yeah. Back then, I could work for $2,500 a day 
And I could do that for five days a week. And I could do that for three months. And I wouldn't have to work again for six months. And that's what I would do. (laughs) When I was a free, when I was freelance, I would work as much as I could. And then I would take a break, work as much as I could take a break. And then, you know, I would get called to go on trips with the bad boy family to Miami and we could be down there for two months and I'm still making my rate. And it's just like, you know, the, I don't know if you ever saw this ESPN 30 for 30 called Broke. Mm -mm. It's about all the, the sports figures that got all these big contracts and then they are broke. I advise every, and I tell all my students, watch Broke. Because you think this is going to be your life. This is the way your life is going to go for the next 40 years. And that is only going to last maybe five, maybe 10 at the most. Unless you get the Tony Maserati break, the CLA break, or the Jason Joshua thing. You know, all of those guys work hard for what they got. They all worked hard for what they got. Not diminishing what they do, but they got it and they they kept it. And they're going to keep it going. now. What are they going to do when they're 80 or 60? Now, hopefully they put enough nest egg behind to do that. Mm -hmm. Most of us guys who don't get to that point in life, T-Moz is another guy that that I could speak how he helped and influenced me. He gave me discipline in the control room. Totally. Give that to Tony Maserati. And Prince Charles Alexander and Kevin Thomas, another one of my mentors. I had some great mentors. Like that's- I know. Some great mentors. And they chose me. They chose me. You know what I mean? So yeah. I must be doing something right now. But <laughs> you think that, that you're always going to have these major labels clamoring for you, trying to get you to come do their work. You don't think that the business is going to change. The business model is going to change. You don't think that the music industry is going to change. How they make money is going to change. All of that changed. Technology changed. Everybody started using Pro Tools and everybody calls themselves an engineer. Now the labels are, who can I get for cheap? Yeah. (laughs) And then everybody's prices went. Yeah. Just fell off a cliff overnight. It wasn't even like, okay, in two weeks or in two months, we're going to start going with the lower costing guys. It was, okay, you're the best guy in the world. Your phone stops ringing. When your phone stops ringing and then you go, hello, are y'all working? I hear new music coming on the radio. But I'm not getting your calls anymore. And, you know, again, Teresa, I sat down, I talked to Teresa when she was at Arista. And she told me that, yeah, they just have to go with different people because of the cost of making records. It's the same, but people aren't buying as many records. So they have to cut their costs of wherever they can so that their bottom line can go up. So I understood that totally. So I had to change my prices and, you know, a lot of different things. But the money wasn't where it was. I had a very expensive wedding where I spent a lot of money on things that I can only re- remember now. Best day of my life. Not going not gonna to lie. <laughs> Most memorable. Have you ever had somebody try to bring a demo tape to your wedding to give the puff? Now, that's a... Oh, man. That's... Trust me. The movie will be hilarious. <laughs> but I wish I had learned earlier, even, even before getting into the music industry, just understanding how to do things financially secure, to secure that financial thing at the end. I'm a lot better at it now than I was then because I don't have a lot of money to waste. Or, you know, if I mess up one time, that could be it. 
especially now in COVID. It's like, <gasps> but I still buy a lot of plugins. And stuff. I know. <laughs> I'm a plug-in whore, man. I just, I can't. <laughs> I hate the commercials on Instagram. I was, <gasps> a new plugin. Oh, I, I know. Get, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. I know. Just down, so. it's, it's a drug dealer mentality, too. <laughs> just try it for free. It's fine. Try it for free one time. You're hooked for life. Then you're in. Yeah. Man, I have like probably a thousand plugins that I just, I never paid for. I just used them once just to see what it did. I'm, I, I have to really, if I clear my computer of those, I'll probably find like 50 gigs of shit that I don't need anymore. <laughs> yeah. We could start a whole new movement called plugin minimalism. Yeah. 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 Nowadays, you do some teaching. Yes. And I know that you, you, you're big on education. Did you start doing teaching to diversify your income? Was that part of that? I mean, I know that you, you enjoy teaching, but was it financially driven? Yes. <laughs> I needed a job. Yeah. Teaching came when, well, because I ended up being a manager of Daddy's House. I ended up running Daddy's House from 2000 four to roughly 2011. There's another guy who comes on, Tony Druden. He really took over for me in 2010, but they let me hang around to 2011. My time with Puff had just run out. We couldn't stand each other. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It's his studio, so who's going to be the one to go? Me. He's never going to change. It is what it is. Like, literally, when I leave here, this studio now, I have to go to the warehouse where all of his stuff from daddy's house is being stored right now. Long story, but <laughs> I have to go there to help somebody find something for him. And it's just like, come on, man. But you guys are cool to this day, right? We're family. It's family. Yeah. It's family. And it's been family, I would say, from day one. We don't have to like each other. It's family. I mean, my son is his, his nephew. His daughters are my nieces. His, his firstborn son is like my son. Justin, like I held him when he was one and my son and Justin were born in the same hospital on the same day by the same nurse. Uh -huh. So there's so much in our, like we're family. So it's, we don't have to like each other. Okay. We, we both love each other. I know we love each other, but we don't like each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that. But I, I mean, I'm not on his first call list of something great. Hey, yo, Steve, guess what just happened to me? No. But when he, he knows I know what I'm doing and he knows he wouldn't have let me run his entity for as long as I did and, and put me in charge of millions of dollars in my hand to pass to someone else to control and do things with his catalog. He wouldn't put me in charge of that if he didn't believe that I understood and I could do the job. And I always went out of my way to prove I could do the job. It's just that our thoughts of what daddy's house was were very different. And it's his. I should have known. Like I, Now, that's a very important lesson. No matter what you think, it's always somebody else's shit. <laughs> so don't take it personal. But Daddy's House meant so much more to me than just a recording studio. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, the, it's where my life changed. So I owed it to Daddy's House to try to do the right thing for it, which was the wrong thing for the corporation. Yeah. That's where our philosophies kind of split. So, so teaching. You're teaching. <clears throat> teaching, yeah. So teaching, when, when I left there, I had went down to another employee that was still at Daddy's house. He did a seminar at the Institute of Audio Research. But even when I was running the studio, I had interns and I used to like to teach the interns, just tell them little things here and there, 
try to get them going. And then they wanted me to hold class. So I would sit in there with a bunch of interns and try to get them because nobody taught me as an intern except Bob Rosa. Right. Like I didn't get that information the way I wanted to give them. So I wanted to teach them to be better engineers so that they can then get gigs and stuff like that. Even if it wasn't with me, I taught them to replace me and everybody that was on my staff. I wanted you to be better than me, that you can do my job better than me. That's the only people I would hire. So anyway, I started doing that, you know, just getting them little groups together and teaching them. Then one-on-one, if you got a question, come to me, I'll get up and I'll come help you. So that was my beginning of teaching. After I had left daddy's house, I had to detox. So I was out of work for a year and a half, maybe two years. I just didn't like, yeah, 2011 to 2013. I was a golf bum. (laughs) Best part of my life. Anyway, I went to a seminar. A friend did a seminar at IAR. So I went with him. And then, you know, I talked to a couple of people there and they said, yeah, you know, they had teaching openings. I said, okay, I'll try it. And a friend, I just went to South by Southwest and I got right back into music. Everybody around me was like music, 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 music. Cause I was out of it for two years. Just, I didn't want anything to do with it. You know, I had a little drum machine or whatever, but other than that, I didn't want anything to do with it. So when I came back, they asked me, did I want to come in audition to teach there? And I did. And I fell in love with it. I just fell in love with learning again. Because I had to relearn a lot of the things I knew to teach someone else. Because before then, I couldn't tell you what compression was. I could just tell you what I did. Yeah, you, know, yeah, you put that, you put it on here, you do it this way, da 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 So I had to get them to understand what threshold meant, the level at which the device acts upon a signal. I had to tell them what ratio meant, the amount of reduction in the signal. I had to tell them what attack meant, how fast the device will act on the signal and release how long it took the the affected signal to return to its unaffected state, output gain or or makeup gain, how much relative difference you can make up to get back to the same level you were according to your gain reduction. Mm -hmm. I had to learn to to say those words in that order so that they can understand each parameter. And I had to understand what threshold really meant. You know what I mean? Yeah. I knew what it did. I just had to understand what it meant so I could speak it. Had to understand what each one of those things. It's like you drive to a place every day, but then somebody says, how do you get there? And you have to say, oh, let me think that through. Okay, what's your phone number? 414 yeah, so, Sometimes when it was in my phone, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Let me look at my phone. Because I don't know. Oh. I don't call myself. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm so used to telling people my phone number. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I know my phone number, but I'm just saying sometimes I just draw a blank. Like, I don't know. But if I'm standing in front of a class, I can't draw that blank. I have to be the most assured person in the room. I have to give them a reason to believe in me. Uh-huh. Because my I had a teacher that when I was in IAR, Tom Templeton, I believed in him so much because he just came to class with a piece of chalk in his hand. No papers, no books, no nothing. Everything was coming out of his head. And this was, he was teaching us audio electronics. And he would just write across the board like books across the board. Like we had three boards and he would go to the second one then he'd go to the third one. Then he started erasing the first one. We're like, no! <laughs> I need to take a picture of that. But no, there was they, before we had camera phones. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. long before then. That's what they do, do did to me. They took pictures of my stuff. But I believed in him because it was coming out of his head. He didn't go to a book. Yeah, It was like, this is it. And then I had an incident at school where a teacher told us to discount what he said I said, what are you talking about? Because he knew it better. I'm like, no, 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 no. 
Then I went to the book and I found it. Long story. But anyway, it was Tom Templeton. And I wanted to be him. I wanted to have the students understand what I'm saying and believe what I'm saying as I'm saying it and not just, well, on page 33, you know, it says you got to go here because so many, so many teachers didn't do that. Yeah. They really didn't do that. And I wanted to make sure that what I was saying to them was real. And I always pride myself on being as real to my students to a fault that I could be. I got in trouble for it, but I was as real to them as I could be. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you, so to this day, what does your life consist of now from an audio perspective? Do you, and also, do you continue to teach? Yeah, from an audio perspective, I am partners with Studio to Stage Productions. And man, it, it's just been a blessing to be, be here with my partner, Mike Salvo. And he has given me the opportunity to, especially due to this COVID, because I was in a corporate AV world, but that shut down. And I came to this. He put an ad in, in um, Indeed for instrument lessons. And I just said, hey, I teach such and such, such and such. Would you be interested? I came down. We were going to put together some programs about audio engineering, music production. And he showed me the facility, a person that I knew was actually designing. Horatio was designing this place. And I came in and we talked and we hit it off. But then right after his grand opening, that's when everything shut down for COVID. So it was kind of like, boom, shut down. So mm. we've been slow rolling everything back up again. And this is my priority. I love being here. It's a comfortable space. I do everything from heavy metal, country pop, back to my elements. You know, I get... You know, this is kind of a affluent neighborhood, so a bunch of rich kids thinking they can rap. So they come and download stuff off of YouTube and they're trap rappers. I'm like, okay, you know, but it's it's cool. And I'm here to encourage them to do their best. And that's all I want them to do is do their best. I'm not saying they're going to succeed. Don't tell me you're going to be the next big thing, but I'm not telling you you can't be. I'm telling you, let's get the song right. Let's do better. Let's make this the best record we can make it be, period. And that's all I do. Teaching, yes. I'm a teaching artist for a New Jersey Performing Arts Center, a music production or hip-hop production. Let's put it that way. Well, let's put it a better way. Beat-making class mm. over the fall. Um, I'm trying to develop an audio engineering class and also a music business class with them. Starting this month? Yeah, the end of or first of April, I will be working with the Grammy Museum of Newark for a music production class, another beat making class, but this one is called music production. Hmm. And we're going to develop that also into more of a more well-rounded program for music production, singer, songwriter, audio engineering, and music business class. So we're, we're putting that together. And also a few other opportunities have come up, you know, especially since Clubhouse, talking to different people about different platforms to build out. And, you know, they want my input and help them do things. And I'm game just as long as it's for the, the education of people so that they can do better jobs at, at, at this stuff. I just want people to walk in the room with, with an understanding of what they have to do. And if everybody comes in the room with an understanding, my job is easier. So I'd much rather make that well in advance before you get here. So the future engineers, if you get one of my students, they're going to understand what they, they're supposed to do in the studio. Do you maintain a home studio at all? 
Yeah, my laptop. No, uh, yeah, I um, nothing big. It's just I had a studio. Well, I had a production space, my back bedroom that has been since turned into a man cave for my son. <laughs> it when he was born, it, it turned into the guest room, and then I took all my stuff out. And then now that he's older, he needs a man cave, so he has his own man cave. So I've moved my stuff to this little cutout alcove, little spot next to my master bathroom and my bedroom. And I, I'll sit there and I, I sit there for hours. I, I mix, I have enough speaker. You know, I got the right speakers I need for the space and I got every plug in. I have my drum machines and everything there. So I just sit there and I, one day I'm making a beat, the other day I'm mixing or I'm mixing a the beat. Then I'll, yeah, I'll make a beat and, you know, go back and forth, vice hmm. versa. So just whatever, whatever. If I have a deadline of something, if someone sends me a mix, yeah. then I'm mixing most of the time. If I'm not right now, I know there's a couple artists looking for tracks, so I'm trying to facilitate them. Mm-hmm. Just do some tracks and get it to them. I go back and forth, production and mixing. Where can people find out more about you? Do you maintain a website or a strong social media presence? Yeah, I don't, and I'm just really opening up to the fact that. Social media is something that I can't run from. Yeah. I'm on Instagram at in like dent, one word. On Instagram, the same thing on Twitter. Facebook is just family and friends. Yeah. That's all I do. I'm I'm thinking about doing a website. Just not sure if I want to do it yet or yeah. when I'm going to do it. I need to do it because of situations like this. This is stuff that I can post. And, you know, and I, you know, I tell all my students, especially in the music business students, like, you know, if you want to be an artist producer, you have to put yourself out there. You have to give people some of yourself so that you can then receive them and then understand where they are. So when you do put something out, you can send it directly to them. You can get direct contact to your fans. That's right. But I don't do it. I guess I'm a hypocrite for that. (laughs) Well, Stephen, it's great to meet you. I'm, I'm really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Hey, it was my pleasure. Definitely my pleasure. I'll do it again. And just let me know. I mean, like I said, I got so many more stories. It's just too many stories. Well, jo- <laughs> join me on Clubhouse and we'll uh, we'll continue with the stories. All right. All right. Will you take care? All right. Thanks a lot. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right. Pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Stephen Dent here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review. That's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, 
Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs> 